For 19 seasons, Silicon Valley Reads has engaged the community in important conversations and free events centered around books and a common theme. Last year, our theme was connecting as the COVID-19 pandemic altered each of our lives and we looked for ways to stay connected to each other and to our community. In 2022, as we continue to live with the impact of a global pandemic, we selected a theme to build on our connections, the power of kindness, resilience, and hope. Presented by the Santa Clara County Office of Education, the Santa Clara County Library District, and the San Jose Library, Silicon Valley Reads partners with 37 libraries, 32 school districts, local bookstores, and community organizations to encourage people to read the same thought-provoking books and participate in hundreds of free programs, including author talks, book groups, children's programs, and community events. For 2022, we have selected three memoirs, each of which embody the theme of the power of kindness, resilience, and hope from a unique perspective. See No Stranger by Valerie Kaur is part memoir, part practical guide to changing the world by loving each other, ourselves, and our opponents. Enough About Me by Richard Louie follows Richard on his journey to care for his father who suffers from Alzheimer's disease. Richard is struck by the impact compassion has, both as an individual and as a community. A Dream Called Home by Raina Grande is a beautifully written immigrant story of Raina crossing the border from Mexico at age nine. Her story enlightens us to the challenges so many confront in making a home in America. Four books which align with the theme were selected for our children and youth to appeal to all ages from pre-K to high school. We have many exciting events planned for the whole community, both in person and virtually. Please visit www.siliconvalleyreads.org for more information and to register for more of our 2022 programs. Hello, I'm Dr. Mary Ann DeWan, Santa Clara County Superintendent of Schools and co-chair of the Silicon Valley Reads Initiative. I'd like to welcome you to the kickoff of Silicon Valley Reads 2022. This year's theme is the power of kindness, resilience, and hope. Through difficult times, it is the kindness of our friends and neighbors, the resilience of our community, and the hope for the future that keeps us moving forward. We are excited about exploring these themes with you and our featured authors this evening. First, it is my pleasure to introduce our moderator this evening, Saul Pizarro from the San Jose Mercury News. Saul has written the Around Town column for the Mercury News since 2005. The column covers the people, events, and culture in Silicon Valley. Thank you, Saul, for moderating our event. But before Saul greets you, I'd like to introduce the Ragazzi Boys Choir. Founded in 1987, the choir group provides outstanding musical education and performance opportunities for boys and young men ages 5 to 18 from more than 100 schools and more than 30 local communities. They perform under the leadership of Executive Director Kent Jew. Please 
Enjoy their song, Music Changes the World. In order to make a true change in the world, I will pledge to myself to have acceptance of others, to be more tolerant, to be a kind, considerate person, I'll look within myself. And only then can I make a real change in the world. Sal, it's great to be here. And journalist to journalist, um, it is always a great gathering. The Merck is an important institution in California. Um, it's really great to meet here and, and to be able to gather. It's great to gather with the Commonwealth Club of California and to be hosting this along with Sil- Silicon Valley Reads uh, and to stand beside uh, somebody who uh, is really uh, has a great long shadow when it comes to being such an accomplished writer that's Raina Grande, uh, Grande, and I mean that in a, in a very nice way when I talk about a, a very tall shadow. Uh, and Valerie, uh, wherever you're at, we are thinking of you. Uh, I know that you are you're getting through some tough times, and we know you're going to make it through. Um, you know, when uh, I, I was, I got the email um, about the idea of the kickoff for Silicon Valley Reads 2022. Um, I really was surprised because <laughs> I was like, what do you want the theme to be? You want it to be the power of kindness, resilience, and hope. Um, I almost thought that that might've been a title of a sermon from my father who was a pastor. Um, indeed it was not. Instead, it was a great gathering of writers, uh, of books and of discussions and ideas around this thing that we hope we can do and we know we can do. But we need to be reminded in different ways and in different voices with different faces and in different places. And the fact that we're here today um, talking digitally is is good, as well as shows us some of the opportunities in front of us to gather together. Now, Silicon Valley Reads to me is so important personally. My mother was an elementary school teacher. She taught in Los Angeles, K through three, and in San Francisco in the school district there, K through three. And in her retirement, 
she volunteered for uh, the library because they didn't have enough funds to have anybody in the library. And she went through each and every book and would bring them home in her retirement to redo the labels on the lower ham part of the spine. So any of you who goes to a school library, the two or three of you that still do, and you see those little numbers at the bottom, know that some who spend a lot of time and a lot of tape trying to get the Dewey Decimal System right. And my mom wanted to do that because she knew reading can change people. And in fact, for me personally, it was in an institution of education where I began reading newspapers. And I had skipped school out of high school for five years because I didn't believe in education. I almost flunked out of high school twice, um, barely graduated. And so I worked in fast food for five years. And then I took an English class um, from Mimi Reardon at the City College of San Francisco, go Rams. And uh, not De Anza, not as good as De Anza. I know you say that, that's okay, but go Rams. And it was because she told me, Richard, uh, find some newspapers, read them, read it every day. And it was because of, again, an institution of education saying reading's important. And that's where I found love for education again. The connection seems sort of old school, uh, obvious, but we have to remember that it's important. And it's where we find values like the value of kindness and resilience and hope. And when I began that journey to write my first book, Enough About Me, The Unexpected Power of Selflessness, I couldn't believe I was trying to do it. I mean, I was the kid that would take home my uh, assignments to my mom and to my sister, who's younger than I was, still is. Uh, and they would tear apart my essays. I mean, I I would give them a red pen. I, I think I had maybe 5% of the words I had started writing on that page left over. And so when I began the book, I knew it was a little bit above my pay grade. And so was the topic, the idea of thinking about others. And what drove me, Sal, was the idea that it is really, really tough Um taking care of another person, uh, a family member. And my father, who had lived with Alzheimer's for eight years, in the beginning, I didn't know what I was about to get into. But I knew I had to do it. And here I am sitting in Manhattan. And I approached my boss thinking it might be the last day of my job, because I was basically walking in to talk to my boss at MSNBC and NBC News. To ask her, first of all, it's a weird question. Can I please be on air less? And uh, you know us on air people, Sal. We don't ask for less time on air. Just like you ask for less column inches. No, <laughs> we do not do that. Um, and I told her I wanted to do it to take care of my dad. And she surprised me. And she said, you know what, Richard? And I thought she was going to say, love working with you. When things change, come back to me. Instead, Event Miley said she was wearing glasses. She did one of those numbers, and I thought that's when it was about to come at me. And instead, what she did is she said, I'm taking care of my mom as well in Florida. And let's figure out together how we can make it better for you, for us, and for your dad. And you come up with four ideas, and, and I'll come up with four ideas. That idea of kindness, that idea of being able to help me bounce back. And the idea that I could hope for a, a good outcome is what she gave me. And that was 
seven years ago. And that began this journey of thinking of what does it mean to not think about myself? What does it mean to think about my father who had done that for me my whole life? And, and I'm sure that was the same for you, Sal, and, and Raina as well. We have these great people that thought outside of themselves to make us where what we are. And so when I started to write the book, that was the impetus. You know, let's think about. But then I also am a, I'm a big lover of self-help books. And I know, please, I, it, they can get a little bit too much because they're they've gotten really good at it. Because there's, I mean, some of the titles I make fun of in my book is like me, 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 me. I love me, and don't you love me too? And that's just sort of the way we've gotten really good at loving ourselves. And the point of enough about me is being an anti-self self-help book that we can get better at helping others, and some of the exercises that we can go through personally to try to do that. Um, and what drove me along with the very idea of my father to, 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 to come up with that concept was what I was seeing in news as a news anchor. Over the last 10 years, I do believe I have seen enough that convinces me that we've been living through a selfish pandemic. Uh, a, a time where it is easy to take another person's life where it's easy to call an, another person a name, where it is easy to attack somebody in the street because of the way they look, not even knowing who they are. And if I keep on telling those stories after the last 10 years from, and it even goes farther than that, Sal. My first story that kind of piqued this was Rodney King. I was a cub reporter in Northern California, and that story happened. And I was sent into the streets to cover the marches. And then I was standing in the streets for Michael Brown and Ferguson. And I was standing in the streets for Freddie Gray in Baltimore and George Floyd in Brooklyn most recently. And, you know, as we as storytellers start to tell the same story over again of such catastrophe, we wonder whether we're getting better. Whether we're getting better. And so the idea of a selfish pandemic really pushed me to try to be on the other side of the ledger to look at the solutions that I've seen out there. Because every time I've told a, a story that's painful, I've often seen other people standing by the side that have done something amazing and great. One of those individuals that sits on the other side that gave me the inspiration to uh, write a book way above my pay grade. I mean, as you know, most of us journalists will write books about what we cover. You know, what is our... What is our specialty? That we, What's our beat? And if I were to write a book about my beat, one of those books would be about mass killings. That's what I'd be writing about. I don't know if that is what I wanted to dig into. So instead, um, I worked for a topic that was way above my pay grade, but I wanted to attack it as though it were a book I would want to read. So I have a lot of research. I hired a scientist. I hired a researcher, um, a data uh, data researcher as well, or, or, or graphics uh, data graphics person from one of the the uh, news organizations that I work with, and that it came out to ten people in total, um, poets, comedians. <laughs> uh, I, I tried it all because I knew I needed to get across a human idea of selflessness, but the person that was on the other side of the ledger of why we are 
attracted or might believe it's possible? Because is selflessness possible? Is it really possible? Aren't we built just to take care of ourselves? El Paso, Texas, there was a mass killer in a car shooting, driving down the freeway, going after the Latino American community, it seemed. And I had an, I was covering it all afternoon and evening. I get the word in my ear, Richard, this is from my producer, Richard, there is one of the eyewitnesses who's in her car and she's on the phone. She's next. Tiffany Parada got on the phone and I had a former FBI official on another, who was another one of my guests at the time. I ask him to stand by. I go to Tiffany. Tiffany, what happened? Tiffany says, we were driving down the freeway. All of a sudden, this Honda Accord starts shooting at us. We turn on, we drive the other way. And then me and my husband talk and we decide, you know what? We've got to warn the people that are in front of this guy. And we have, we have an old Suburban. We got a big old V8. We can bypass this fella. So they go, drive past him. They get shot at. And they start warning the people in front of them. They roll down their windows and start screaming, get out of the way, get out of the way. And Tiffany then says, we get off the freeway and they start to help those who were shot, you know, calling for ambulances, giving them the clothes and as tourniquets for their arms and things like that. And I'm like, Tiffany, why did you do it? And she said, well, it was me and my husband and we knew we had to help the others. I said, well, was it just you and your husband? Um, no, my children were in the car too. And I said, where were they? And she said, they were in the back seat. Oh, um, and again, my producer saying, ask her the, what she saw of the gun. What did the gun look like? What did the suspect look like? But I knew the story wasn't there. The story was clear was, was with Tiffany. And she says, there's Elizabeth. She's seven. There's Juan, who's five. And she can't get to number three. Because she realized she had her whole world in that car. Why did Tiffany Parada do that? So, I mean, the unexpected power of selflessness, it is there. And so stories like Tiffany inspire me to dig into the science that you can, and I'm, these are the unintended benefits of being selfless. But she got there because of muscle tone. Her parents, her family, her friends, she didn't get there just that one day. There was something that she did consistently where she was thinking of others because she didn't think twice, neither her husband. And so the muscle tone of selflessness is the way we one day do become Desmond Tutu and Mother Teresa. And we're not doing it in a perfect way, by the way, because, you know, there are days that Desmond Tutu and Mother Teresa were quite imperfect. They were on some days a, well, we'll say not so perfect and, and made mistakes. And that's an important concept because when we decide to do good things and we decide that we want to try to be a selfless person, we don't have to be the perfect 10, but we do have to be a 51%. We have to be not 100%. If we can do 51% of our things that are okay, like when we give money to a person who doesn't have a home tonight, we always guess, well, if I give that person who doesn't have a home tonight five bucks, are they gonna, is it going to be used the right way? 
well, I bet you 51% of the time it does work out okay. We should give the five bucks. So when I work, walk by that person and I have to think about that every time, it takes about three minutes and I turn around, get the $5 or two bucks out of my pocket and I give it to that person, we should all turn around. We should reconsider the 51% because who are we to say it needs to be perfect because we can't be. So the idea of selflessness, Sal, is really one that I think is accessible. I think it's, as you can tell, very doable in ways if we think about structures where we don't expect the perfect decision. And by doing more of it, you know what happens. We develop muscle tone. And through muscle tone is where we are able to then to do the big things, the things that will change people's lives. And we've seen it in our work as journalists. And we can become Tiffany Parada. That's, uh, that's very inspiring, Richard. I've got to tell you, uh, you really touched a chord with me talking about being a journalist and you know, how you do cover stories like that. And you've got a choice. You can either become jaded or you can uh, learn something from it and develop some of those things yourself. So I, I think we're going to get into more of that when we get into our questions and answers. But now I'd like to uh, turn to Reina. Now, Reina Grande, if you've read her two memoirs, you probably know more about her life than anyone outside of her family. Uh, but for those of you who haven't done that yet, I want to give you a little bit of information about her. She was born in Mexico and raised by her grandparents after her parents left to work in the United States. And she came here at age nine as an undocumented immigrant. But as you know, if you've read it, she became the first person in her family to get a college degree when she graduated from UC Santa Cruz. So go slugs. Um, she also later received an MFA in, and that's the, the UC Santa Cruz banana slug for those of you who aren't in Northern California. Uh, and she later received an MFA in creative writing from Antioch University. Uh, she lives in Northern California with her husband and two children, and I'm thrilled that she could be here with us tonight. Uh, welcome, Reina. The floor is yours to share with our audience, uh, you know, how you got into this work, what made you uh, write a memoir, or two memoirs, and, and what you've taken away from that experience. Great to have you here. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here. I am so honored that A Dream Called Home was selected for the Silicon Valley Reads. Thank you to everybody who made this event possible. And thank you to our audience for being here tonight as well. Um, so I actually, I, when I went to UC Santa Cruz, I majored in creative writing. That's why I went there. And my dream was to one day become a professional writer. It was a very difficult transition because coming from Los Angeles, from a community college where the majority was Latino, and then coming to UC Santa Cruz, where at the time when I was at UC Santa Cruz, about 13% of the student body was Latino, and they were not majoring in creative writing. They were in like Chicano studies, you know, or Latin America studies. So I felt very out of place, and it was very challenging um, dealing with the culture shock. But I started writing uh, my memoir at UCSC, and I soon realized that I really wasn't ready to write it yet because I had just gone through all of those experiences and I was dealing, I was still dealing with the trauma 
And when you write a memoir, you have to live everything twice. And I just wasn't ready for that. So then I turned to fiction writing instead. And I wrote an autobiographical novel, semi-autobiographical novel. And um, I knew that one day I would return to the memoir. So I wrote two novels and I finally then gathered the courage to start writing The Distance Between Us, which was my first memoir. And part of the reason why I decided to start writing this memoir was, was because in 2010, the DREAM Act was proposed and it fell to pass. And I was really, um, I was really hurt and I was very angry on behalf or of our undocumented youth living in this country, you know, the dreamers, because I myself was once an undocumented child immigrant and I really wanted this country to do better by the dreamers and to pass the dream act and to give them the opportunity to legalize their status and to be able to, to really um, start to build a, a future, you know, on something permanent, but that opportunity was denied. So I, I was inspired then to start writing my own story as a child immigrant growing up in this country undocumented and what that was like. So I wrote The Distance Between Us, which talks about my experience of, like you, you mentioned earlier, about me being left behind in Mexico by both my parents when they immigrated to the U.S. So I write about that family separation and, and the trauma of being a child left behind for many years. I write about my experience crossing the border at nine years old and, and risking my life to, to cross that border um, to come to California looking for for something, you know, for a better future, but also to be reunited with my parents and to finally have a family again. And I write about that experience, you know, of growing up undocumented in the United States and constantly feeling unwanted and hearing, you know, go back to where you came from and just trying to trying to earn my place in American society and many times feeling that I didn't deserve to be here and yet always struggling, always striving to earn my place and to finally be accepted. Um, so when I wrote A Dream Called Home, that was a sequel to The Distance Between Us and it starts when I arrive in Santa Cruz. And I wanted to write this book because I, I didn't, you know, when I, I grew up reading a lot of books, but I didn't really read um, or have access to Latino books or books written by Latinos about Latinos. And I especially didn't really see any books about Latinos in college, you know, or Latinos, Latino writers or memoirs about Latino writers. So I wanted to write a book that captured the experience of what it's like to be a first-generation Latina going to university and the struggles, you know, of trying to pursue a higher education when you're the first one, when you're really like the pioneer in your family who's going out there and, and with a machete, you know, trying to pave that path for yourself, but also for the generations, the next generations in your family. And I came from a family that they didn't really have education. My father only went to the third grade. My mother only went to the sixth grade. 
my maternal grandfather didn't go to school. He was illiterate. So we didn't have um, opportunities for education in my family when we were in Mexico. So being here in this country, that was something that inspired me to, to work really hard because I knew that I could break that cycle, that I could take my family in a completely different direction if I just managed to get through college and to get that university degree. So being in Santa Cruz, it was uh, challenging, but also beautiful. And um, I became the woman, or I started to become the woman that I am today, thanks to the experiences that I had there at the university, um, trying to find my place and also learning how to look out for myself, learning how to make my own decisions and, and how to own up to my mistakes as well. I made a lot of mistakes. If you read a, a Dream Call Home, you'll see how many mistakes I made along the way. But, you know, I always got up. Every time I fell, I got up and I continued pursuing that, that dream of um, earning my university degree and also pursuing my dream of one day becoming a published author. So that's what the book is about. It covers that journey of my transformation from a former undocumented immigrant to a, a published author. And when it comes to the themes, you know, in, uh, in this year's themes of kindness, resilience, and hope, I just thought they were such perfect themes because that, that, those are the themes that I talk about in my book. I talk about resilience because as somebody who grew up with so many labels, you know, undocumented immigrant, low income, first gen student, um, and then later on as a single mother, you know, a English language learner. I had so many different labels that, that I grew up with, and I was constantly striving to overcome those labels and to not let those labels define me. So I learned how to be resilient along the way, and I, I learned how to bend uh, and, and not allow myself to break, no matter the challenges that, that I found in, in my way. Um, and then, of course, hope. Hope has always been such a big part of me because ever since I was a little girl growing up in Mexico without my parents, the thing that sustained me through all those years of separation was hope hope that one day I would see my parents again, hope that one day they would come back for me, um, hope that one day we would finally be a family. So as a little girl, I had to learn how to have hope and how to nourish that hope, you know, because that is something that we need to learn how to do is to nourish our hope and to and to make sure that, that we're constantly, constantly um adding to it so that it doesn't dry up or, or wither away. So hope is what brought me here to the United States and hope is what has kept me going and kept me striving to succeed in this country. And in terms of kindness, uh, I wouldn't be where I am today if it hadn't been for the kindness of other people, you know, in a dream called home. Uh, I write about my community college teacher, Diana Savas, who was the first teacher who ever told me I had writing talent. 
She was the teacher who encouraged me to transfer to UC Santa Cruz. She's the one who helped me get there. But also, if you read The Distance Between Us, you know that Diana also took me to live with her, which is like talk about kindness, right? Like my, my English professor gave me a home uh, where I could focus on my studies and it was just such a such a beautiful gesture that I am always going to be grateful for because I know that if it hadn't been for her kindness and for her mentorship, I, I wouldn't be where I am today. So when I went to UC Santa Cruz, I encountered other professors at UCSC who also showed me a lot of kindness and who mentored me along the way. And to this day, they're still mentoring me. They're still showing me so much kindness. Um, even, you know, my creative writing professor, Mika Perks, who's still there at UCSC, she reads everything I ever write. You know, she has written all of my books, giving me feedback. I'm sure she didn't think when I signed up for her class like, over 20 years ago that she was going to be my teacher for the rest of my, of my life, but... She has been my, my teacher, and she's always been there for me. Um, I have other professors, like my Spanish teacher, uh, Marta Navarro, who also mentored me and encouraged me to not be ashamed about my immigrant experience, not be ashamed about being an English language learner, about being a Spanish speaker. And it was that teacher, Marta, who um, empowered me when she told me that instead of thinking of myself as somebody who wasn't enough, she said to me, Reina, you are more than enough. You are now bilingual, bicultural, binational. Your immigrant experiences have made you twice the person you used to be. And to me, that, that was like a powerful act of kindness for somebody to help me reframe how I saw myself. And, and who helped me to, to empower myself by um, instead of being ashamed of all the things I had gone through as an immigrant, to instead see them as, as um, something that have made me twice the person that I used to be. So now I, I went from being ashamed to actually thinking that, you know, being a border cro crosser is actually my superpower. And writing A Dream Called Home was an act of celebration uh, for my own immigrant experiences, but also for all, all of us immigrants. You know, the immigrant community that's here in this country working really hard to give to this country the best of ourselves, you know, and, um, and especially right now during COVID, we have seen how it is immigrants who have been out there in the front lines the immigrants are the essential workers um, working really hard to make sure that we, we continue to, to thrive despite the challenges that we're facing right now as, as a global society. So a, a Dream Called Home and A Distance Between Us are immigrant memoirs and they're a celebration of the immigrant spirit. Thank you so much. Thank you, Reina. And let, let me tell you that I found a dream called home just really powerful. And you know, you just had a powerful truth to your story. And it was at times funny, at times, you know, frustrating to read what you were going through. And 
And then, of course, the end, I mean, it's it's like watching the end of a movie and knowing that all some, some very good things start happening for you. And that Scrabble game. Oh, so, you know, uh, thank you for that. So I want to bring uh, Richard back in and we're going to have a little conversation. Uh, we'll bounce some questions off of you. Uh, some will be directed at one of you specifically, but uh, others will be meant for both of you. And if you you know have something to say on one of these questions, we're just we're just talking here, so feel free to jump in. Uh, we're also we've got some questions from the audience already, but if you have questions for our authors, please feel free to send them in through the chat. And our Commonwealth Club partners will be going through them and sending them to me and we'll get to them as well as we can for the next few minutes. So what I want to start off with is you both wrote memoirs, and uh, Raina, at the beginning of A Dream Called Home, you do point out in your author's note that you don't have any composite characters in this book. You did, you, you changed some names uh, for privacy reasons, but, you know, and you left some, some people or, or events out for dramatic reasons, but both of you, one thing you have in common is that you both write about your families and in some cases, some very sensitive things about your family, some powerful stuff, some, uh, you know, difficult uh, things to write for both of you. How much did you think about that in doing the writing or planning this? Uh, was it difficult for you to say, okay, I'm going to put this stuff down on paper that about the, the real, the real stuff about say taking care of your father and what that really is. Or in your case, Raina, you know, the, the relationships you had with your father. Uh, so I'd like to start with you, Richard. Uh, how, how much did you think about putting that in? Yeah, I was wondering here, Sal, whether or not my dad would be okay with me talking about the way he poops. That, that's kind of what I was dancing around, but yes. Yeah, I just got straight to it. And the reason why I knew he'd be okay is he was a social worker uh, and a pastor. And as a social worker, he was really focused on making sure you knew how to ask for help, whether you were not having a place to sleep tonight or whether you didn't have a meal or whether you were 80 and were having trouble taking care of yourself. He was really clear about you got to admit your pimples, your foibles. And that's the only way you can get better. And so when I was writing about how me and my siblings would laugh and, and would use the poop emoji to say how well he's doing in terms of how well he's eating and digesting, shall we say, those were the simple and small wins in caring for somebody as they were battling a disability for him, Alzheimer's. And we knew that was both humorous. We also knew that it was very human. And we knew that maybe inelegant along the way. But would he tell that story? Would, would he say it's okay, Richard? And he couldn't. At that point, when I was writing the book, my father had reached a point in his Alzheimer's where he could not walk or talk or eat through his mouth. He had a stomach tube. And so I couldn't get his feedback. But I really even throughout my caregiving, use the same question. Is that what he would want to do today? Or when, what, is that what he'd want to do when he did not have Alzheimer's, when Alzheimer's was not attacking him? And when he, my father passed a month ago, we were 
looking through his eyes still, Sal, what would he want us to do? What is the right thing? How would it be like me to talk about his life and what he did? So it was difficult, a little bit sharp um, in terms of putting in those details. But I knew it was when you want to share the idea of caring for somebody else, it goes to, and those caregivers who are out there, those family caregivers, you know it. I'm sharing things that you know. And the most honest and vulnerable we can be is the best that we can be in our relationships and the best that we can be individually. So me learning how to be more vulnerable, which we say a lot, has been that the long journey and it still is today as I am now going through another phase. And I think it is important, um, at least it was for me and in my journalism, not to hide what the facts and the, what the journey was and to respect the family. Um, you, I always must respect the family. And so in the film, for instance, we were covering some very serious disabilities of young people and what they were doing. And I told all of them that I would take their story to the very end, that I would be there in the edit room. I would be the person delivering it. I would be the person that would continue to tell it. I'd be the person to update it, that they did not have to worry that I would be giving the story away. And I think when we think of this idea of thinking of others, of being kind, sometimes we forget that in what we do day to day. There are certainly stories in human trafficking where I was not so kind. And I forgot that I get to leave after telling their story. And they're left behind to try to battle for their own survival. And I, I definitely did not always do well. So it definitely fits into our profession and, and that, that reality of, uh, uh, that we must share. I think a lot about it and I consciously and purposefully do do it, even though sometimes it comes out to be a poop emoji. Sometimes it does. Reyna, what about you? I mean, your, your stories are, are very powerful between both memoirs. Was it difficult to return to those times of your life? Um, yeah, yeah. No, emotionally, it was very challenging because, as I mentioned earlier, when, when writing the memoir, I had to relive everything again. And it wasn't just me, like, writing about what happened, but also how it felt. So I had to re-experience all of those emotions again. So that was really overwhelming at times. And of course, um, while I was writing The Distance Between Us, my father was diagnosed with liver cancer. So he was dying while I was writing that book. And it made it very difficult because I was writing about my father when I was a, a child and then dealing with the father that I had as an adult who was dying. So that, that made it very, very difficult to juggle these two different fathers and in writing the book, um, you know, I never took a creative nonfiction class. I've only taken fiction courses. So in writing the memoir, I didn't know that a memoirist could actually set boundaries. And so I just wrote everything. I was maybe too honest sometimes. And I, maybe I said too much. But that is how I wrote the book. You get to see the good, the bad, and the ugly, especially the ugly of my life. And um, it, it hasn't been until recently that I've been teaching memoir and I've been meeting more memoirists 
that I understood that, hey, you know, it is okay for you to set some boundaries and to say, okay, this is as much as I'm willing to share with you. And, and I, I thought in, in writing my memoirs, I didn't want to just invite readers into the living room and say, that's it. You could only go into the living room. I wanted to give them access to the entire house. And in some ways, you know, I feel that um, people really appreciate that. because They appreciate how open I have been about my life. But like you said, you know, I'm not just writing about myself. I'm writing about my family as well. And I, I kind of, um, I try to respect their privacy. But I know that there were things that I had to reveal about them in, in the way that it impacted my story. So, the, so I think that's something that with memoirs, you always have to juggle, you know, how much do you share about yourself and then how much do you share about your family and and you know like Richard said we have to respect the family we have to honor the family but sometimes you're airing the dirty laundry you know and how do you do that how do you how do you show respect while at the same time airing that dirty laundry well and I think you you kind of learned that early because in in your book you you write about a incident that happened when you were at when you were graduating from UC Santa Cruz, and you were praising Diana in your speech, but at the same time talking about your life with your father, and and he did not have the best reaction to that at the time. Uh, he probably had a very true reaction for himself, though. Uh, you know, talking about memoir, Reina, I want to ask since you've done both, uh, do you have a preference between fiction writing and nonfiction? Hmm. Well, sometimes because I, you know, the trouble the, or the challenge with novels is that you have to start from scratch and you have to create the characters and you have to do the world building and figure out what the story is. So you start from scratch and then you build up. Um, memoir is easier because you already have all the material, you know, you already have all the experiences, all the, the footage, but the challenge is um, set, carefully selecting that footage and like, what are you going to put in and what are you going to leave out? Because you can't put everything in, otherwise the memoir won't have a shape, you know, it won't have a narrative arc. So there's challenges to both. Um but I like switching between one and the other because, for example, when I finished the memoirs, I was so emotionally depleted that I just could not write another memoir. I had to take a break. So then I wrote a novel, and the novel gave me a chance to not have to write about myself. You know, I, w I wasn't the, the protagonist of the story. It gave me an opportunity to step back and to just focus on another story set of characters and, and to build another world. And now that I finished this novel, I feel replenished and I, and I feel that, hey, maybe, maybe down the line I could write another memoir now that I've taken a break from it. I, I, I was going to ask later if, if you've got another, another one in you. Now, R Richard, I want to get to you because there's a, a great section of your book where we learn that selflessness is sexy. Uh, for those of you who haven't read it, he, he put together a little profile that, that had his picture and three facts about him. 
And for one of them, he changed the fact to, to explain that he was caring for his father. And uh, people found you more attractive with that fact there. Now, is there any science behind this or is this uh, just uh, l- lucky? Uh, y- you know, us, us journalists, we just make it up. No, <laughs> no, you know, uh, one of the, on the editing side, uh, the things that, so the mix of a memoir and a self-help book is a little strange and um, it has been tough necessarily. Uh, I mean, uh, it's been tough communicating that to folks, right? It has a little bit of memoir and it's a little bit of self-help and um, especially something called enough about me and you're selling, you're showing stories of yourself. And the reason, as Rainy was saying, I was, I was sharing a lot of my mistakes about how I was selfish uh, throughout my life and making the wrong decisions or people that had taught me about selflessness in the journey. Yeah, you can look better if you are selfless, you can make more money, and you can live longer. Now, in the writing of the this book, it was at the last third of the journey that we decided, well, you know, I like self-help books. And one of the typical quintessential things that self-help books do, live longer, make more money, look better. So I said, let's dig into whether that's true. There's tons of science out there. And and there were several studies. One was of an archeological uh, dig and there were 30 students. They didn't know each other. They rated how each other looked on the first day. There was one individual and she was rated 3.5 out of 10. At the end, she was a seven. Now they, they said that the reason why that had changed is because she also rated quite high on being selfless and kind. In the beginning, they were, you know, just uh, objective students, subjective students, I should say, looking at the way others look and, then I there were several other studies and, and, you know, whether you would pick a mate based on their quality, if they're kind. Um, and, and again, we looked at the science and there it showed if you are a kinder, it's on, on the primary list, number one criteria, criterion to for for a mate. Um, and then what we did said, well, is that true? So we had two characters, selfish Richard and selfless with that one distinction you just made. Self-ish Richard came in at a 6.3, far from a 10, ladies and gentlemen. And you really don't want to know those numbers for ourselves. We just don't like to do that. And when self-less Richard was ranked, because as you noted, there was one little difference in the description of that person, same picture, came in at 7.0, 7.1 or so. And that was a 15% bump. So ladies and gentlemen, if you live a self-less life, you will... Be, appear 15% more attractive. You will also make 50% more. We looked at data over a 14-year period across all professions. And if you work in a selfless manner, you're grateful, you rec- you recommend other people, you, th- you thank them publicly, you are helpful at work, you're a team player, you, you're not a person that destroys others' work, you work with them, all sorts of examples you will make 50% more over the over your career. That's a 14-year span of data. And will you live longer? Four years longer. If you live a selfless life, you will live two years less than average if you say you're selfless, but are really selfish. So don't do that. Don't say what you're not. If you're selfish, just admit where you're at in your journey. Yeah, that's right. And that's why in the book, we do have a, a scoring sheet to determine 
how you can fill it all out and you score yourself. It's based on two scientists evaluation of how we can figure out qualitatively how selfish we are. So if you want to see just like a selfish scale, if you were, or a selfless scale, it's a way to get on it and see how, how you're doing. Wow. Uh, I will fill that out later. And and you forgot that there was also neutral Richard who collects stones. Uh, and I don't know how neutral Richard did, or if you actually collect stones. So, Reyna, we've got a, an audience question for you. Uh, one of our audience members was struck by the kindness you showed to yourself by not saying that you you made mistakes, such as getting pregnant. You don't refer to that as a mistake. Uh, this person wants to know, is this love part of your nature or how did you get to the point of being so kind to yourself? Oh, thank you so much for that question. Um, yeah, I don't know how I got there. I think for me as a young girl growing up without much love at home from my parents, I had to learn how to self-soothe. And I especially had to learn that, you know, when my sister, my older sister left to start her own life and I no longer had her to protect me and take care of me. So I had to learn how to take care of myself. And I think I developed this um, two personalities because I started to talk to myself more at that point. Whenever I was down, I would give myself pep talks. And there was always the other Reina, you know, the stronger Reina, who would talk to me and help me through some difficult moments. So I understood that I did, that I had to take care of myself. I had to forgive myself whenever I messed up, you know, and to understand that that was part of the growing up process. You know, I was learning how to how to become um, uh, an independent woman, and I was going to make a lot of mistakes. And, of course, um, I think what, what, I, what I have learned to appreciate about myself is that I don't allow myself to, to regret things or to look back on my life and to say, oh, my God, you know, I shouldn't have done this, I shouldn't have done that, but to actually turn some, uh, something negative into a positive and to focus on what has that experience taught me and how can I become a, a better person? How can I keep giving the best of myself no matter what, what I do, you know, what, what by, bad choice I might make? How can I prevent myself from, from, from doing that again and, and learning uh, from those experiences? And I definitely um, don't regret my, my, my choices in that I like who I am now. You know, I like the person that I am today. And I, and I feel that I might not have gotten here to this place if it, ha if it hadn't been for some of the things that I went through. That's a great attitude. I, I tell people that sometimes my kids will ask me, oh, do you have any regrets in your life? And I say, well, no, because I like being here with you and everything that happened to me in this life happened because of that. Uh, Richard, a uh, question from the audience. They want to know how someone bring, how can somebody bring up a son like you and respond to caregiving with the grace that you have? Uh, did you share the caregiving with your siblings or other family members? Um, can you talk a little bit about how that worked? Yeah, thanks for that. And, and, Nobody wants a son like me, I have to tell you, because I, I gave my mom such heartache 
and my dad heartache. And I just can't believe the, you know, and this is the theme of our conversation, the kindness that they showed me and all my siblings, despite what we did. Um, really, really amazing. Um, I was a kid that always zig when everybody else was zagging. You know, I, I, like I was mentioning earlier, almost flunked out of college, uh, out of high school twice. Um, I got grade point averages of 0.1, you name it, I had it. And yes, you can get GPAs out low. And getting kicked out of high school and almost not graduating was really tough for a school teacher. Um, and then I didn't go to college, which just drove my parents crazy when I didn't do that. So I think what happened in the end was that strange mix of love and encouragement that they gave me that was just really the, and I don't know the answer as to what that is, but they, 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 they just said, Richard, you're going to find your way. And when you fall, we'll help you when you fall the wrong way, we'll tell you it was the wrong way, but we're going to help you back up. And when I went to college, finally, they paid off my debts so I could go to college finally. And, um, one of my favorite uh, uh, commencement speeches was at City College of San Francisco uh, when my dad was sitting there in the audience with my mom and not, uh, not, gra- not graduating there, but instead going back to say, this is an important place. Don't forget uh, the great institutions of education and our community colleges, as I think our conversation and the th- three of us would agree, are really amazing. Uh, and what they give to our society. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, it's been a really imperfect journey. Um, We, we grew up on food stamps. Um, It was pretty tough for us uh, early on. And I still have that seared in my brain and thank are thankful for the welfare system uh, that got us through everything um, during that tough time. And I say all of that, not because, you know, how do you raise uh, a son that or a daughter that can be thoughtful? Um, Because there's so many different ways of doing it. And I'm not a parent. So I'm not. I mean, Sal and Raina, you probably have the the magic solution. I certainly don't know. But I will say that's why the documentary and the book focuses on on the values that I hope will stand up, stand out to those who are younger to say, yeah, I can do that too. Sky Blossom was a movie I spent five years filming and it's of age 11 to 26 of young caregivers taking care of a parent or a grandparent. And there are 5 million of those out there. 5 million children that are taking care of a, a parent with, or a grandparent with, living with a disability. And if we can sh- shine light on that, that is the way that we reinforce the values of those who might care for others for the long term. I do call this generation of caregivers and specifically military caregivers in the movie, the next greatest generation. And I call them that because they have the values instilled in them today of caring for other people. And now they've lived through two years of really understanding what the core family is and being a team. I think we're we're set for some super great times ahead for 
for you, Sal, for you, Raina, and myself. And we're always worried about the next generation. I'm so encouraged by your children and the values that they have been taken in. I mean, it's been tough, but I do believe their values are just something amazing. So I know I'm kind of talking about a lot of things about how to, about children and caring for parents and caring for others. I'm super psyched about Gen Z. Well, wait, wait, wait till you have some, then, then, then you can... <laughs> you're like, uh, he's like, wait until you, <laughs> but, but it sounds like you had some really good values instilled in you. And I want to ask Raina in your, in your memoir, you do talk a lot about your mentors and the people who've helped you along the way. Is there any great advice that you received that you would pass on to the next generation, especially to young immigrants who are trying to sort of find the path that you found? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it's important to remember that the people that you see that have succeeded, they didn't get there by themselves, you know, on their own, that they had help. And I would like that to be my advice, that you don't have to have a superhero complex, that you don't have to do it all on your own and save the world on your own. You, you, you need to have a community around you and create that community, whether it's your family, you know, if you're lucky enough to have a supportive family, or you go out there and you find a community. And, you know, that's something that I had to learn how to do, how to, how to get people on my corner that would support me and be my cheerleaders along the way. And I was very fortunate to be able to find mentors and friends and, you know, long life friends. So that's what I would like you to think about, you know, that you don't have to do this on your own. Don't be afraid to ask for help and make sure that you are surrounding yourself by people who, who want to see you succeed and stay away from people that, that don't, don't want what's, what's best for you. So um, make sure that you're always uh, looking out for mentors and, and friends and supporters and cheer, cheerleaders that life puts in your path and learn how to be grateful for those people and show that gratitude. Well, and I think that's probably a hard thing for a lot of us to remember is showing that gratitude, telling somebody both, you know, telling somebody, thank you. And telling, sometimes telling somebody, I don't like that. <laughs> so uh, now as I told you before we started, you know, the time has just flown by with both of you. Uh, we've had a great conversation. We're getting close to where we're going to uh, start wrapping up. So we're, I'm not quite saying we're getting into speed round here, but we're getting close to it. We're going to have a couple of quick questions here. Um, well, I guess the big one is, what are you guys working on now? Uh, I know, Raina, you've got some books coming out. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you've got coming in the future? Yes. So um, I actually have two books coming out, one in March and another one in June. And the book that's coming out in March is a novel. It's my first historical fiction. And it's a book set during the Mexican-American War. And I, I wanted to to write about this particular time in history because we don't learn about it. We don't talk enough about it, you know, about the Mexican-American War and how the U.S. doubled in size because they took half of Mexico's northern, northern lands. Um, 
And to me, it's such an important time in history that we need to remember because I think as a society, we, we tend to look at Mexicans as foreigners without realizing that, no, the Mexicans were here, especially here in California. You know, uh, California was once a part of Mexico and Spanish was spoken here first before English. So if we remember our history, I really think it would help us to understand the, the Mexican-American population that lives here and to stop seeing this population as foreigners. So this novel, it's a, it is a novel set during the war, and it's a, it's a war story, it's a romance also, it's a love story, and it's an immigrant story. And uh, my book that's coming out in June is a anthology that I co-edited, and it's 41 essays, poems, and artwork by and about undocumented Americans. So this is a book that I'm really proud of because it allowed me to, to create this space um, for other immigrant voices to be heard. And the book is, is uh, edited, co edited by formerly former undocumented immigrants. And every piece in the book is about the undocumented immigrant experience. That sounds great. Both of those sound great. So, Richard, do you have uh, more writing? I mean, I know you, you got your day job, but do you have more writing uh, ready to come out of you? You've got some poems at the at the back of your book. Are we going to see a book of poetry from you? Yeah, that was, uh, I, I always loved poetry. And, uh, of course, I'm a little daunted by uh, Raina being here and, and her literary successes. But, yeah, I, I, you have to try, right? And your, your students, Raina, you probably tell them, if you don't try, you're not going to get there. Uh, so Sal, I mean, the future has for me to eat whatever Raina is eating, uh, because she is spitting out two books in a course of six, less than six months. <laughs> I don't know. That's just amazing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm working on right now, a second documentary that'll be coming out, uh, next year. It's in the film festival circuit at the moment. Uh, the second film is called Hidden Wounds. Uh, which we've been filming for about also uh, five or six years. And it talks about mental health uh, and mental strength uh, in in the family structure when you're living through caring for other people. And it, it looks at three families across the country. Uh, one of the families is my own um, that we started filming seven years ago. And um, the reason why is I think as we hit May, which is, Mental Health Awareness Month, that does all different ways of understanding mental health where it's not the person walking down the street screaming at the sky. You know, I ask myself whether my mental strength is okay uh, during the last six years because it has been not necessarily easy taking care of my father and now my mother. And that's okay. We worry about our physical health. Why don't we talk about our mental health in the same way, Right. And we got it. We got to work at it. We got to stay strong. And so for May, that we are, we're going to do some events around that film. And then there is a second book that I'm working on that is focused on the selfless organization. Um, and that is going to focus more on my time as a as a business person uh, in my previous career before I became a journalist. So those are a couple projects 
that I hope will um, help the journey. Well, those sound like great projects. I'd, uh, I'm definitely looking forward to Hidden Wounds. I think the whole discussion about mental health is becoming just more and more important as, as we've gone through these past two years uh, where mental health issues have just really come to the forefront. Uh, but I can understand you you going in a more visual direction than, than the written word. Uh, Reina, is there any chance that we're going to see any of your uh, work adapted into uh, movies or TV? I think it feels very cinematic. I love the subject matter. Thank you. Uh, no, I'm, I'm still waiting. I'm still, uh, hopefully, you know, things start to happen. I know that there's so many other Latino writers who have their books being adapted into movies or TV shows right now. So there, there's some exciting things going on. And I hope that one day I get to see my work up on the big screen as well. But I know that Rudolfo Anaya had to wait 42 years to see Bless Me Ultima made into a movie. I hope I don't have to wait 42 years, but um, maybe one day it will finally happen. Well, I, I, uh, and I've seen Bless Me Ultima as, as a, you know, as a movie, as a play, as I think an opera. It's been wonderful. So I hope the exposure Silicon Valley Reads gives you, we've got Netflix just down the street from here. So maybe they're watching and they can, uh, and they can take a look at what you're doing because I think, you know, it's very cinematic and I'd let, and of course, Richard, you're already doing cinema. So I, you know, we've reached the end of our time together and like any good journalist, I'm going to steal a good line, uh, that Rainer recounts from the reading of her, her novel. Thank you for being here, for listening, for caring, and thank you to our audience. That's it for me, but we're going to close with some words from another of our co-chairs, Santa Clara County Librarian Jennifer Weeks. So I'd like to thank uh, you, Raina, and you, Richard, uh, for being part of Silicon Valley Reads this year. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again and seeing what you have coming in the future. Hello, I'm Jennifer Weeks, County Librarian for the Santa Clara County Library District and co-chair of Silicon Valley Reads. I hope you enjoyed this evening's event. Thank you to our panelists, our moderator, our generous donors, our wonderful hosts, the Commonwealth Club, and to all of you who Zoomed with us this evening. This is only the beginning of 2022's exciting program focused on the power of kindness, resilience, and hope, with more than 130 free events throughout February and March. All of these programs are offered free of charge, and this is only possible with your support. Silicon Valley Reads relies on community and individual donations of any amount to be able to offer outstanding events just like this one. We invite you to visit the website to make a contribution or to view the whole list of events at siliconvalleyreads.org. Thank you.